Well, hey there, everybody. Welcome to Gather and Go, the podcast that helps you plan, promote, and lead better trips. My name is Brian Jewell. I am your host, and I am on cloud nine that you decided to spend some time with us today. And hey, speaking of being in the clouds, I am excited to bring you today's featured conversation with Patrick Smith, who is the pilot and blogger behind the very popular website, askthepilot.com. I'm going to be asking Patrick a lot of questions about air travel, and I think you're going to find that a fascinating conversation. So don't miss that. Before Before we talk to Patrick, though, I want to share some travel news you may have missed. And since we are talking all about air travel today, this news item actually has to do with airlines and air travel and some people who are not that happy with the way airlines have performed in 2022. Now, state attorneys general from around the country of both political parties are asking Congress to give states the power to crack down on airlines. The attorneys general of 38 states last month sent a letter to congressional leaders asking them to pass legislation that would allow states to take consumer protection action against airlines. The letter addressed the high level of complaints that the Department of Transportation has received about airlines recently, saying that in the first six months of 2022, the DOT received more complaints than in all of 2019. Now, under current federal law, only the DOT has the authority to enforce consumer protection laws against airlines. But the attorneys general say the agency hasn't done enough to take action on these fronts. So the states are asking Congress to give them this authority to enforce the existing rules. Now, it's worth noting that they're not asking for the authority to make new rules about airlines and consumer protection, but they are asking the federal government to give them the authority to uh, issue fines and uh, other violations to hold airlines accountable, uh, presumably for delays or consumer uh, violations that happen within the state borders. Now, uh, you know how difficult it is to get a law through Congress, so there's no guarantee that this is actually going to happen, but it's an interesting idea, an interesting development. We're going to keep an eye on it and let you know what happens. So while we're on the topic of air travel, I've got a road tip for you today about making the most of the in-flight entertainment system on your next trip. You know, this is one of the things that we're going to talk with Patrick Smith about in the upcoming featured conversation. Uh, Patrick talks a lot about uh, in-flight entertainment systems, how amazing they are, the wide variety of choices that modern travelers have when they get on an airplane today. So here's the road trip for you. If you are flying, if you're going to be taking a group on a flight, especially if you're going to be flying internationally overseas, you need to come prepared to make the most of that in-flight entertainment system. Now, many people travel with headphones and more and more today, I'm seeing people travel with those wireless Bluetooth connected headphones. I travel with some of those. I love them. But here's the problem with those. You can't connect to your in-flight entertainment system using those great Bluetooth, noise-canceling, fancy-dancy headphones you might have. So if you want to watch the movies or the TV shows on your plane and you don't bring wired headphones, then you're forced to rely on the terrible little headphones that the airlines provide and sometimes ask you to pay for. Now, those headphones, they sound awful. Uh, They are very often uncomfortable. And uh, let's be honest, you don't know whose ears those have been in before yours. Uh, That kind of creeps me out. It should creep you out, too. So the alternative is that you need to make sure to keep a pair of wired 
headphones in your carry-on, especially if you're going to be traveling on long flights where you might want to make use of the in-flight entertainment system. Now, I prefer a pair of headphones that I bought years ago for about 40 bucks in an airport. I spent about $40 for them. They are comfortably fitted with silicone ear tips inside my ear. They're not actively noise canceling, but they are passively noise canceling. That means those silicone molds that go inside the ear do a lot to block out unwanted sound. It's not as good as the active noise canceling, but it doesn't require a battery and it delivers great quality sound. It helps me enjoy the in-flight entertainment, make the most of my time on the plane. It's comfortable on my ears and I don't have to rely on the airline's icky headsets to watch a movie or a TV show. So that's the road tip for today. Next time you fly, make sure you bring a good old fashioned pair of wired headphones to make the most of that in-flight entertainment. Now moving on to some news from us. It is September and that means that the buyer's guide for the group travel industry is coming to you in the September issue of the group travel leader magazine. If you subscribe to the group travel leader in print, you should be seeing that in your inbox any day. If you don't subscribe in print, but would love access to all the resources that we have for you in the buyer's guide, you can find that on our website right now at grouptravelleader.com. So what is the buyer's guide and why does it matter to you? Well, the buyer's guide is one time each year where uh, we get our heads together with some of uh, the leaders and uh, great thinkers and innovators in the travel industry, ask them challenging questions about what's going on in travel today, and then bring you some of the best ideas we get back. If you read this year's buyer's guide, you are going to get things like interviews about the present and future of tourism with leaders such as Terry Dale, Pete Pantuso, Catherine Prather, and Carolina Sante. Uh, you're going to see an article with tips about how to solve some of the biggest problems facing your travel program right now. We're going to introduce you to some new travel professionals who are making waves in the tourism industry. These are going to be people you want to know. And we're going to give you some ideas about affordable travel destinations for your group. So if inflation is taking a bite out of your wallet or your travel budget, we're going to give you some ideas about some great places to go to have some amazing experiences that aren't going to cost an arm and a leg. All of that is in the 2022 Buyer's Guide for the group travel industry, and you can find it right now at grouptravelleader.com. All right, it's just about time for us to move into our featured conversation with Patrick Smith. But before we do, let me encourage you to stick around through the end of the interview to the hot minute segment, because I have some thoughts about flying and how flying fits into the group travel landscape. I don't think you're going to want to miss that. We'll be right back with Patrick Smith. All right. So if you're looking for even more reasons to make plans to visit Savannah, look no further. From the moment you arrive, you'll be greeted with moss-draped live oak trees, fresh coastal breezes, and enchanting history around every cobblestone street. Savannah strikes a delicate balance between hip and historic. Casual, but cool. Elegant, yet approachable. Spend the day exploring the city's illustrious culture, roaming through the green city squares while sipping on your go-to cocktail before hopping a trolley to your next adventure. The best experiences happen when you let Savannah take you along for the ride. You never know what characters you'll meet or what's in store for your next tour. And that's just the way they like it. See why groups of all sizes fall in love with Savannah at visitsavannah.com. 
All right, everybody. My guest today is a pilot at a major U.S. airline and the creator of the popular aviation blog, Ask the Pilot, where he answers nearly every question you've ever had about flying. His book, Cockpit Confidential, gives readers an inside look into the art and science of aviation. Patrick Smith, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Brian. Yeah. So uh, I've been reading your blog for a long time. I absolutely love it. And one thing that is clear after reading just a little bit is that you have a really long time love affair with aviation. So can you take us back to how that began? I remember being a little kid and being enamored of of airplanes when I was in first, second grade. Later, I guess, uh, if we kind of grafted out. I, I really hit my aviation geek peak probably when I was in between seventh and ninth grades, when I would spend every weekend at the airport in Boston, up in the observation deck in the uh, control tower, looking down at the airplanes, logging the registration numbers, uh, logging all the takeoffs and landings. I mean, I was a what you would call a plane spotter, I guess, when I was yeah. uh, an adolescent. What, what's maybe interesting, though, is, you know, while I've always been infatuated by airplanes, it's, it's, it's always been more than just the, the, the thrill of flight, strictly speaking. Um, more than it being about flying, it's about what I call, and this is just kind of my term that I, that I came up with, I call it the grand theater of air travel. And, and by that, I mean, it's airplanes, it's airlines, it's, it's airline culture, it's the places airlines fly to, airports, um, airline identity, um, kind of the whole industry taken together, not, not just the kind of seat of the pants thrill of, of flying as much as I love that as well. It's, it's a much kind of broader picture than that. Yeah. So I'd imagine that makes you a, a little bit of a unicorn among your compatriots. I know uh, many pilots are probably fascinated with the science of flying uh, and many people in the back of the plane like me are fascinated mm-hmm. with the experience of traveling. But to be just as fascinated with travel as flying as sort of the nuts and bolts of the airline industry is uh, a unique a set of interests indeed. So uh, you combine those really well on Ask the Pilot. Uh, I'm interested to know what got that started for you and what is your mission there? Well, it got started uh, not long after September 11th, 2001, when I lost my job for a period that turned out to be about five years long. And, you know, I'd always had kind of a latent interest in, in writing and you know, a creative streak, if you will. And suddenly I had no job. I wasn't sure what to do. And I thought, well, let me, you know, let me try this. And so I, I started writing articles about, uh, I think the first, the first subject I tackled was appropriately enough after 9-11 airport security. And I started pitching articles around to different online magazines, different newspapers and so forth. And that long story short, um, earned me a, uh, a, a column slot on the old website salon.com, which is still there. And they named it mm-hmm. Ask the Pilot. And then eventually that ended. Uh, I got sort of burned out doing that. They did as well. And, and I migrated the whole thing over to askthepilot.com, which is kind of another version of what I used to do on, on the website salon. But, it, you know, ultimately, Brian, what I do is, is very, it's very pro air travel. It, it, it's not... 
I'm not a whistleblower. I'm not exposing dirty secrets of the industry or any of that. I mean, quite the opposite. I'm kind of an advocate for flying. And, you know, that's a little bit of a different take from what was already out there as well. There was, you know, just so much of, you know, here's a dirty secret about flying you never knew. And, you know, my take is, well, you know, here's the truth. And it's, it's actually not as scary and weird as you think. If I have a mission, so to speak, it's, it comes from having been so frustrated with all of the bad information that was out there about air travel and flying. And here was my opportunity to kind of tell the truth. And yeah. so that's, that's kind of where I come from. I, I guess if I have a target demographic, it's uh, not necessarily the, the fearful flyer, but it's, it's somebody who flies a lot or is interested in the experience, but doesn't really understand how it all works. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And that's why I was attracted to it. It's uh you know, I spent thousands of hours on airplanes and for much of that time, I would feel things and hear things and experience things that I didn't understand. Uh, and it could be a little bit disconcerting. So when I found your content, I was like, oh my goodness, there is an explanation for the the weird grinding sound or the, the dings in midair that seems not, not to have any explanation. So uh, yeah, that's, it's certainly educational. So you, you mentioned fearful flyers and I know there are tons of people in the, in the public that would love to travel more but are nervous about flying. So break it down for us. How safe is flying uh, in 2022? And how has that changed in recent history? When I approach the subject, if I'm writing about air safety, I, I try to look for kind of more illustrative examples to give people a better sense of, of how and why flying is safe. I mean, it, it clearly is, but, but getting people to believe that is, is, is tough. Uh, for an example, okay, we just passed... Um, the, the the 20 year anniversary it's now been more than 20 years in the united states since a major airline has had a serious fatal accident you know we're talking about the big leg the big legacy carriers uh the big major carriers it, it's been 20 years since any one of those airlines has had a significantly fatal incident the, the last major crash was uh, the American Airlines 587 crash in New York City in November of 2001. Now, up until that point, it, it was pretty common to have one, two, sometimes more um, major air disasters in a year. Um, and that was routine. And we just went 20 years yeah. without one of these major accidents. That, that's just absolutely astonishing. And in a story I posted on my site, I, I called it maybe the most significant story in the history of commercial aviation, but almost nobody talked about it when it happened, when we passed that milestone back in November. Um, why is that? I, I, I guess a, a plane not crashing isn't really much of a news story. And you know, nowadays with, with social media and everything else, minor incidents when they happen, they tend to get spun up and, yeah. you know, go viral as they say, and kind of are out there in everybody's face for a day or two. Then they go away. Then some other little thing happens and then the cycle repeats itself. And in people's minds, these are examples of, of flying being dangerous. To me, they're, they're examples of flying being safe because almost always they don't amount to much. And when you then step back and look at the big picture, you know, ho holy crap, we're, we're just not seeing crashes like we used to. 
That's a great perspective because, uh, you know, uh, when people don't have facts, uh, when they're uncertain of things, their minds tend to fill in the gaps because our minds want to be certain, right? And so I think they mythologize some things about travel and the, the danger of travel uh, that can be really quickly uh, remedied by just looking at some of those numbers. So uh, that's, that's really helpful. So uh, in the 80s, lots of crashes in the 90s uh, as well. Commercial air travel has changed a ton uh, in the past 20 or 30 years. What are some of the notable changes that you have seen since you've been flying professionally? Uh, well, there, there have been good, good and bad changes. I mean, you know, flying has become much safer. It's uh, much more ex- inexpensive than it used to be. And, and, you know, that's something that's lost on a lot of people, especially younger people who have this idea that flying is expensive. Flying is not expensive. Flying is cheap. Um, you know, when I was a kid in my you know, grade school, there were only a few people who'd ever been on an airplane, you know, probably mm. 20% of us or something like that. Because, and, and the main reason for that is it was just very expensive. It just wasn't something that you did routinely. You know, last stat I saw when you adjust for inflation, you know, flying's probably half as expensive as it was 30 years ago. Um, so yeah. it's, it's, it's cheaper, it's safer. Um, you know, we can talk about service, you know, for all the, the anti-airline sentiment there is out there and all the griping people do about flying. You know, you get on the airplane now, you've got a seatback video screen with sometimes hundreds of entertainment options. You've got onboard Wi-Fi. You know, the amenities of flying today are much better than what they used to be. And people often talk of this, you know, golden age of air travel, which apparently was back in the, the 50s or the 60s. I don't I don't really know because I don't I don't really believe it existed. I think when you really look at it, you could say that right now we're living in the golden age of air travel where it's extremely safe, extremely affordable and in a lot of surprising ways, uh, comfortable. I mean, maybe yeah. back in the 60s, you had more legroom. Maybe there was a seat. Uh, fewer across in the, in the average cabin, but you didn't have also the, all those other things that, that we have today. I mean, remember, do you remember the in-flight movie? Um, mm-hmm. you, know, you know, when I was a kid and you flew, you, you didn't have a video screen on your seat back to look at. You had a, a blurry white movie screen that, that they zipped down up in front of the cabin and projected a movie onto, and it was never anything you wanted to watch. And then for the audio, they gave you one of those... Um, stethoscope kind of things yeah. with the with the sharp little plastic earbuds that would dig into <laughs> your ears it was just horrible and you'd stick that into your armrest and it was it was just a an air tube is all it was there was no amplification yeah. or anything and you, you just got this kind of you know sound of somebody in the distance talking through this tube as you're trying to watch this blurry movie um that was in-flight enter- entertainment you know compared to today where on some airlines you, you might you might have 200 movies to choose from um, yeah. Now, all of that duly noted, um, you know, flying is is has a lot more hassle to it than it did, you know, back in the day. Um, the lines at the airport are longer. Uh, the, the whole TSA experience, which is you know something we can talk separately all day about, it, it is there to stress you out and make the experience terrible. Um, airports are noisy. Airplane cabins are you know jam packed with screaming kids and so forth. It's not always a pleasant experience. It, it can be tedious. It, it can be stressful. 
Um, delays and, and air traffic congestion are a lot more common than they used to be because there are a lot more planes flying than, than used to be the case. So there are those negatives, but there are also all those positives. And, you know, which one, you know, what wins over what just kind of depends on your perspective and preferences. To me, I just, I, I see, like I was just saying, I see this as kind of the golden age of air travel. And, you know, I wish people could acknowledge those kind of positive points in addition to all of the negative stuff that we're all pretty familiar with. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I would add to that, uh, even when there is a disruption and interruption in my flights these days, it's so easy for me to just hop on the airline app and select a new flight or at least see what the options are. I mean, you know, gone are the days of queuing up behind uh, a podium where, yep. you know, one poor soul is trying to rebook 200 people on a flight. So, you know, for every, for every hassle, there is a, a huge convenience that uh, we're, we're taking for granted in so many ways. Yeah. That, that you, you just put it better than I did. Um, and, and consider this too. I mean, nowadays you've got airplanes going everywhere all the time. I mean, you miss a flight, there's another one in an hour or, or two hours. I mean, you know, gone are the days when you, you flew from the East Coast to the West Coast and made five stops along the way. Oh, my goodness. And, uh, you know, yeah. if you missed a flight, the next one didn't leave in two hours. It left the next day or two days later. Um, and, and internationally, you know, you're flying from London to uh, Singapore. You, you, uh, in the, as late as the, the 60s, you probably made four or five stops along the way and the flight left maybe once or twice a week. I mean, now you can hop on a plane in, in almost any major city around the world and fly to almost any other major city nonstop. I mean, and that, that's just incredible. So the flying experience has gotten much better in the cabin. Tell us about what's going on in the cockpit during that time, because, you know, there's a reinforced door there. And uh, those of us in the back really have no idea what you are doing. Uh, except when you come on the intercom to tell us. So can you give us the the very brief uh, overview of how busy are you uh, during a flight and what are the sorts of things that you're doing? And maybe deal with the, the question of automation because there are people out there saying, well, we fly drones remotely. Why can't we fly passenger jets remotely? So help us wrap our minds around that. There are very busy times in a cockpit and then there are long stretches where there's almost nothing going on and it just ebbs and flows and, and, and comes and goes uh, stretches of being busy stretches of, of not being busy and those things can happen at unpredictable times I mean there are times when it gets very busy over the middle of the ocean in the middle of the night when when everybody's sound asleep in the cabin and everything seems you know just relaxed and peaceful uh, something could be going on up in the cockpit where we're we're very busy and I don't mean something bad. I mean, just something routine, just a, a communications procedure that we're dealing with or any number of things. Um, I, I think by and large, and then there's a big segment in my book about this. Um, people have a, people have a vastly exaggerated sense of what uh, cockpit automation does and how pilots interact with that automation. Um, you know, there's this idea that the airplane is quote unquote flying itself and pilots are just kind of along for the ride in case something goes wrong and then we spring to action and, and, and save the day. Uh, that's, that's not at all how it is. 
one analogy I make is, you know, an airplane no more flies itself than uh, a high-tech operating room in a hospital can perform an organ transplant by itself. Um, you know, the surgeon is there and that has to be highly skilled, highly trained. And, and the same goes for the pilots. And, you know, even when the automation in a cockpit is up and running, it's still a busy place and the pilots are still controlling the airplane. We're just doing it in a different way than we did in the 1930s when you had to sit there staring out the window with your hands on the wheel like this. I mean, we're still controlling the plane, but we're doing it through the automation interface. You still have to tell the plane what to do, how to do it, when to do it. Um, you know, in, in the airplane I fly, um, you know, there are probably six different ways to, to set up and command an automatic climb or descent, depending on what's needed under the circumstances. And, you know, you often hear about, well, the autopilot, pilots don't shut the autopilot off until a thousand feet above the ground. And then they're only flying the plane for 10 minutes or, or, you know, a minute and a half for the landing. Well, that's true in the sense that we don't have our hands on the, on the steering column, but we're still all that time controlling the airplane and, and telling it what to do and how to do it just in a different way. So uh, for somebody who wants to become a pilot today, what are they looking at in terms of training and time commitment? Where would they even start? That also is a hard question to answer because the industry is in a real <laughs> state of flux right now. Um, mm. You know, basically, as always, there are more or less two channels to becoming an airline pilot. You can you can go through the military and, and earn your experience that way, or you can go the civilian route as I did and, and do it that way. And you, you build up your experience. You, you, you earn your licenses and ratings step by step by step. And eventually when you reach a certain uh, certification standard, you know, a certain number of hours and certain licenses, you can apply to fly at an airline. And that doesn't mean you're going to get hired by Delta or American or United. You're going to get hired uh, by a regional carrier at an entry-level airline pilot position, not making a lot of money per year. And you're going to do that for a period of time. For me, it was eight years before I ever got on with a big carrier. Nowadays, it's it's less. And uh, one of the things that's, that's happened is the regional carriers, you know, the uh, – affiliates of the major airlines, the express connection uh, carriers, you know, they basically ran out of pilots because for so long, for, for decades, they, they, they didn't pay. They offered terrible benefits. They, they had hostile work environments and, and the, the applicant pool dried up because people said, I just, I just don't want to get into this industry and have to be treated like that. And then, you know, maybe at some point, go to work at a major carrier. Uh, that was never guaranteed. And to put out, in some cases, hundreds of thousands of dollars to, to fund your primary training and earn all your hours and experience um, and then get to that level and realize what a miserable career it is, uh, you know, people just stopped doing that. And so now the, the regionals are, are desperate to get people back into the pipeline. And so they're offering salaries and, and, and benefits packages that are just unheard of. And so new pilots now are, are coming on at a younger age and with overall less experience than used to be the case at the regionals. And, and so they're, they're trying to build up that, that applicant pool again. Um, 
part of that is, uh, you know, to avoid this, this pilot shortage that, that we hear so much about. You know, the, the major carriers draw a lot of their pilots from their regional partners. And if the regional par- partners aren't finding pilots, eventually that trickles up to the majors. And so there, there's a yeah. systemic problem with that that's, that's kind of being addressed right now. Things are improving. And uh, because of that, it's actually... Uh, it's actually a good time right now to get into the industry because on average, the, your career progression is going to move much faster now than it did in decades past. So uh, there's a lot in media and pop culture uh, about aviation, both in entertainment and in news, especially when there is some sort of aviation disaster. What in general does media get right about aviation? And maybe more importantly, what are they getting wrong? The media is notorious for for inaccurately portraying almost anything to do with commercial aviation. I mean, some reporters, some journalists are better at it than others. Um, But as a general rule, anything that you read in the media about, say, an airplane incident, or even just uh, just a generic story about something to do w- w- with an airline is going to have some level of inaccuracy in it. Um, you know, I hate saying yeah. that, but it's 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 true. Um, you know, where to start? It, it, it could be anything, but yeah, it, it seems like uh, you know a lot of reporters are working under quick deadlines, and they're maybe not as uh, used to sourcing good sources as they did, let's say 50 or 60 years ago. So does some of the issue break down to reporters being in a hurry and not actually taking the time to reach out to an experienced pilot? Oh, absolutely. I mean, to their credit, um, or in their defense, I guess, um, it's, it's a fast paced environment. Like you were saying, there are other people around deadlines and, and they don't have a lot of good go-to sources. Um, it's, it's, it's not an easy thing to get the right information about. And part of that is because airlines are recalcitrant. They don't like talking to the media. And so they'll throw out some boilerplate excuse about something. Um, pilots are hard to get on the record um, to talk about certain things. It's, it's, it's not an easy task if something happens in aviation for a reporter to, to go and get the right information, accurate information. Um, one of the mistakes that, that, that I see a lot is um, I'll read quotes from, you know, this or that uh, aviation academic, I guess we'll call them, uh, professor so-and-so of, you know, something aeronautical university says. And I often end up rolling my eyes at those quotes because, you know, sources like that, okay, I mean, you know, these people are bright and they're good at what they do as researchers, as, as academics, professors, whatever, but they, they tend to have a, a very poor understanding of the day-to-day operational realities of commercial flying. So I, you know, I put myself out there. I try to give, give better responses, more enlightening info, uh, you know, whether people listen to me is another story, but I try. <laughs> yeah, I hear that. So uh, where's the best place for people to find and follow you? Uh, the best place would be um, my website, askthepilot.com. And of course, the book, which you mentioned, the book is out there as well, Cockpit Confidential. There's a second edition that's out now. Uh, there should be a third one in the next year or two, incorporating all of the pandemic-related changes in. 
So before I let you go, we have uh, just uh, some fun questions that we ask every guest. So uh, no pressure, but I'd, I'd be really interested to hear your, your take on these things. Question number one, uh, window seat or aisle seat? And you can't say jump seat, okay? <laughs> window seat or aisle oh, seat? Oh, no, I, I, I hate the jump seat. Um, always a window seat. Oh, why is that? Well, because of the romantic in me that likes to look out the window. And also because, uh, at least if you're in economy class, you can lean against the sidewall for a little extra comfort instead of having to lean against the shoulders of two strangers. Yeah, fair enough. Okay, so what is one thing in your carry-on that you never travel without? A roll of masking tape. Okay, you got to fill me in on that. Uh, Not for any specific thing, just it, it seems that every now and then something comes up, something needs to be fixed, something needs to be held up or, or, or taped up. And that's just that roll of tape just comes in surprisingly handy. And I'm glad I have it. I also carry a bungee cord for the same reason. I need to, to hang something in the shower to dry it. Uh, who knows what? Um, that's, that's another surprising little indispensable for me. Yeah, gotcha. So the next question we usually ask is uh, if you had a free airline ticket and a week off work, where would you go? I know that's not a theoretical for you. you. You probably find yourself in a situation like that all the time. So next time you've got a pass and some time off, where are you thinking of going? Well, I have a list, I guess, like, like a lot of people. And you know, I, I, I've traveled a lot, not just through my job, but on my own. Um, you know, my, my, my love of aviation when I was a kid eventually inspired kind of a love of travel just generally, and, and an interest in geography. You know, one of the things I did when I was a kid and was into airplanes is I would study route maps of the commercial airlines and all the different cities and places they went. And that, in turn, got me interested in, well, hey, what are these places? And would I want to go there? And you know, eventually started traveling. And I think at last count, I think I've been to 92 countries. Um, you know, probably half or more have been on my own, not just places I've traveled for work. So where would I go next? Um, there are places on the list I've, I've wanted to go, but haven't been, uh, Bolivia, Uzbekistan. Um, I'd like to go back to, uh, I'd like to go back to Botswana in, in Southern Africa. Now it's hard to say what my favorite place is, but of all the, the vacations I've taken, a, a safari I once did in Botswana was probably my all time favorite vacation. I, I'd like to, I'd like to do that again at some point. So maybe I'd go there. Yeah. Well, that leads into our last question, uh, which is what's something you've seen or done on the road that you wish you could go back and experience again with somebody you love? Probably that very trip. Um, mm. Because I was alone. I was in a, I was in a group tour, but I wasn't there with anybody I knew. And to be, you know, in a tent out in, in these national parks in the middle of the night with, with elephants and lions just, you know, 10 feet outside walking by. Um, you know, there were moments on that trip where I just wish I had everybody I knew there to experience that with. Yeah, I feel you. Uh, safari is amazing. Really, any opportunity to go overseas and encounter another culture, another environment is something none of us should take for granted. And it is made possible for all of us by aviation and by the professionals like you who uh, take us there. So Patrick Smith, thanks for all you do. And thanks for being on the podcast. Thanks for having me on, Brian. It was fun. Well, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Patrick Smith. What a fascinating guy. He has lots more to say 
about air travel and answers pretty much every question you could ever want to ask on his blog, askthepilot.com. So I really do encourage you to head over there and check it out if you're at all interested in flying. I will link to that in the show notes to make it easy for you to find. There are a few things I want to recap from that conversation because they're so important. You know, one thing that Patrick pointed out that many of us don't think about is that there hasn't been a crash on a major U.S. commercial airline in 20 years. And that is a stunning achievement in safety. You know, as much as uh, airlines and airports and protocols and everything we have to go through to fly can be a hassle, that hassle is creating great safety outcomes. And so the next time that you are on a flight that is delayed for a mechanical or even a weather reason, maybe have a little bit of perspective and realize that it's that kind of caution and protocols that have uh, set this incredible record in safety among U.S. airlines, and we should all be grateful for it. Patrick also said that flying is half as expensive now as it was 30 years ago. And he said, right now we are living in the golden age of air travel. And, you know, that's really something that we should all stop and celebrate and be grateful for. You know, I remember just like Patrick said, I flew very rarely as a kid because it was so expensive. It wasn't something that many people did. But today, it's not a big deal to book a flight to go somewhere you need to go. And uh, yeah, there's trade-offs for that. We may not have the legroom we used to. We may not have the amenities that we used to 30 years ago. But for my money, the ability to pay a few hundred dollars and get on a plane and be in another part of the country uh, in just a few hours, that is pretty incredible. And uh, I feel like the more people that we can give access to travel to, the better off the world is going to be. And finally, Patrick said... Now you can leave any major city in the world and fly to any other major city. And that's just incredible. You know, I'll echo Patrick's sentiments here. There have been times when I've been traveling from very far away, especially headed home. And it is amazing to me that I can wake up in Amman, Jordan, or in Poland, or in Germany, or in New Zealand, Australia, and know that the next time I lay down in a bed, I'm going to be in my bed at my home on the other side of the world. We are living in an incredible time and we have access to that kind of travel and uh, you can take that flight any day of the week and get where you need to go and the world is more connected than ever. And for those of us working in travel, that is an amazing thing. So for those of you working in the group tourism industry, I've got a question for you. Are you making the most of the incredible miracle of air travel in your group's travel plans and programs. You know, many groups don't fly. They don't fly very much. They may not fly as often as they should. I have some thoughts about that. And that is the topic of today's Hot Minute. That's right, the Hot Minute is the portion of the program where I take 60 seconds to give you my unfiltered views on an issue impacting travel every day and today's hot minute is all about air travel and the role it should play in the group tourism industry so let's put 60 seconds on the clock and get into it okay so here is my beef with a lot of people in the tourism industry they bus everywhere 
all the time. In fact, a lot of group travel planners refuse to consider trips that require them to fly. Now, this is a problem, obviously, because it rules out international travel, but it's also a problem because it makes traveling to some of the amazing places around the United States that are far away from you impractical, if not impossible. Now, uh, this started many years ago when flying wasn't as cheap or easy as it is today. And I can understand why some people 30, 40, 50 years ago didn't want to get on planes with groups. But the world has changed and your travelers, while they've probably flown before, they're probably comfortable flying. If you would consider adding flights to your group travel tool belts, you could show your people many more amazing places and spend more of your trips enjoying the places you go and less time sitting on a bus driving down the interstate. That's the hot minute for today. That's the way I see it. As always, you're welcome to disagree with me and we can still be friends. And if you agree or disagree or have questions or thoughts or anything else, I would love for you to send them to us. You can reach us at podcast at grouptravelleader.com. I read every email that comes into that address and you never know your thoughts or questions just might be the topic of the next hot minute. And hey, while you're in the mood to give us some feedback, we would love for you to go over to your podcast player of choice. Give us that five star rating. Give us a review. Let us know what you think. And while you're over there, go ahead and subscribe to Gather and Go so that you get the next episode automatically in your sleep. Well, that about wraps it up for this episode. My thanks again to Patrick Smith of Ask the Pilot. On the next episode, we're going to have a great conversation with Ted Bravos of the International Tour Management Institute. We're going to talk all about training tour guides and how the business of tour guiding is changing. You won't want to miss that conversation. Until then, remember this. At the end of the day, we're all on this trip together. So let's make it a good one. See you next time on Gather and Go. Gather and Go is hosted and executive produced by me, Brian Jewell. Our publisher is Mac Lacey. Donya Simmons is our creative director. Ashley Ricks is our circulation manager and graphic designer. Our sales team is Kyle Anderson and Bryce Wilson. To advertise on the podcast, call Kyle or Bryce at 888-253-0455. Gather and Go is a production of the Group Travel Leader. For more information about our magazines, podcasts, and events, visit us online at grouptravelleader.com.